Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, beginning in verse 23, and you'll find that on page 1684 in your pew Bibles. John chapter 19, verse 23. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing all that was now completed, so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Well, the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones, not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Steve. Uh, we are in the midst of a, a series looking at the seven last words of Jesus from the cross. And uh, we are up to the fifth of those words. <clears throat> I thirst. And uh, one of the reasons I wanted to read or have Steve read a little longer portion of that text, and I hope you picked it up, but if you didn't, please uh, um, check it out later in, or later in the day. But there are so many references in John to the fact that what happened was that Scripture would be fulfilled. And we'll talk more about that as we go along this morning. Friends in Jesus Christ, have you ever had a toothache? One of those that sort of creeps up on you in the middle of the night and it hurts and it throbs and it's pretty much all you can think about. There's no chance that you'll ever get back to sleep. It pounds violently with every beat of your heart. And yet, no one else knows anything about it. I mean, the rest of the house is deep in sleep and your pain is yours, and it's yours alone. 
And isn't that the way it feels pretty much with all suffering that we go through? It's like the one thing that we can truly call our own in life. doesn't matter what it is. Others can sympathize. They can tell us that they understand. But really they don't. Your pain is simply that. It's your pain. Think of loss. Maybe it's a, um, a person or a job or a relationship. And you're driving your car one morning and you see some random object and all of a sudden all of the memories come flooding back and it's enough to pretty much overwhelm you. No one else can feel that. No one else knows when it happens. You don't even know what's going to bring it on. It's your pain, and it's yours alone. There are three simple words that would argue against that notion, however. Jesus' words from the cross. I am thirsty. I am thirsty. Three little words. In Greek, it's actually only one little word. We need at least two English words to translate it. I thirst is the shortest we can do, the briefest. I thirst. And what those words tell us, however, is that someone else actually does know our pain. And that someone has done something about it. But we have to sort of get started at ground zero, okay? This word from the cross, this word of Jesus, I thirst, first of all, tells us that Jesus is human, just like us. I mean, anyone who would be hung up on a cross in the sun would be parched, of thirst. I mean, Jesus is like any human being who's been hung on a cross and out in the sun too long. He's simply thirsty. But besides that, nothing in the Gospel of John is ever as simple as it seems. Because if you notice, John tells us that, that Jesus really was fully aware of his situation up there on the cross. And the reason that he said he was thirsty wasn't simply because he needed some water, he needed a drink, but rather John tells us he said he was thirsty so that the words of Scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus was actually fulfilling Scripture when he was saying these words, and apparently he was aware of what he was doing when he said these words. He was fulfilling Scripture. Now the question becomes, what Scripture was he fulfilling? Well, most agree that he's referring to Psalm 69, where the psalmist says, they gave me vinegar for my thirst. The thing about Psalm 69, however, is that it's not a prophecy. It's not a prophecy of any kind. It's, it's not a, a promise that's seeking fulfillment. It's, it's simply the cry of one man, probably a king, but one man, one righteous sufferer who is craving comfort and what he receives is scorn instead. 
It's not a prophecy. In fact, it's not even a prediction that this is ever going to happen again someday. It's, it's not the statement that someday, somewhere in the future, there will be another man who will cry out, I am thirsty. It's nothing like that. It's just a cry, a prayer from someone who was suffering long ago. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck, he writes. I have come into deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out, calling for help. My throat is parched. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs on my head. Friends, this is just someone who lived thousands of years ago. Someone who had a toothache. Perhaps no one even knew what he was going through. It's not a prophecy. It's not a prediction. And yet, according to John, Jesus said, I am thirsty, in order to fulfill those words. It's as if John wants us to know that Jesus was not only human, but he also knew the pain that comes with being human. And not only does he know the pain, but he shares that pain. He knew what it was like to go through a day with all sorts of reminders, which no one else saw, but all sorts of reminders which told him that this is not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus doesn't just know our story. He lives our stories. Not just story. Our stories. Plural. Our stories. You ever noticed how people sometimes try to define us with a story? They can't quite figure out who we are, why we do the things that we do, why we act the way that we do, why we like this silly joke or that. So they try to define us with a story, right? And they say something like, oh, oh, he's divorced. As if, as if that explains me. As if now it all makes sense. Now you know who I am, right? There are all sorts of stories like this. So, oh, he's a pastor or she's a pastor's kid as if that explains it all. Or, or she's a widow. Or he's African-American. Or they have a special needs child. They're migrants. She's adopted. He's not from around here. I think you probably know what I'm talking about, right? What story do people use to describe you? If there is one, you know that one story never does us justice, does it? I mean, not even two or three stories. We are, we are far more complicated than that as human beings. But what, what John is telling us about Jesus is that he knows every one of those stories, every one of the stories that makes us who we are, and he carried every one of those stories to the cross those stories that help shape us, that, 
that are a part of us, that made us who we are. Every story of loss, of shame, of betrayal, of enemies that outnumber the hairs on our heads. Every story of thirst. From a thousand years ago or just from last week, Jesus lived all of those stories and he carried every one of them to the cross. Every toothache that you ever suffered, Jesus knows and lived Every lament you cried, which no one else understood why you were even lamenting, Jesus did, and he carried it all to the cross, and he said, I thirst. In order that the scripture would be fulfilled. What scripture? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He wasn't just one of us. He was one of us. So that's the first part of the good news, and that is we have a Savior that knows our stories, that lived our stories. But I think John has more good news to tell us. And that is, John doesn't just want us to hear that Jesus was fully human. John also wants us to hear that Jesus was fully God. He was fully God. And therefore, he doesn't just hear our stories, but he is willing and he is capable of healing our stories, of making them right, of actually giving them that happy ending that we all seek and desire. I thirst. Those words appear in no other gospel than in the gospel of John. They come only in John's account of the crucifixion. Now, why does that matter, you say? Well, if, if you are trying to harmonize the Gospels and sort of make them all say the same thing, then when one of them speaks differently, when one throws out another word that none of the other Gospel writers record, it creates sort of a problem for you. It creates something you have to explain away, something you have to fix. But if you believe that each gospel is presenting its own unique message, sort of its own unique sermon about Jesus, then we can truly begin to hear what it is that John specifically wants to tell us about our Lord. Let's try to take a look at that. You see, John has a unique view of the crucifixion and Jesus himself. You find it already beginning in chapter 10 of his gospel probably even earlier, but I can't go that far back this morning. But there Jesus in chapter 10 proclaims that no one takes his life from him. No one takes his life from him, but rather he offers it up of his own accord. I have authority, he says, authority to lay down my life and authority to take it up again. You see, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is in charge. Jesus is in control. You find it again in, in John chapter 12, that same message. There he proclaims the hour of his death is also the hour of his glorification. This is when we see Jesus in his full glory. When I am lifted up from the earth, he says, I will draw all men to myself. In other words, Again, Jesus is in charge. Jesus has a purpose. His crucifixion is not some random act of violence. It's not some big mistake. It's not even unexpected. It's 
the will of Jesus and the will of His Father together. It's His plan. It's what He came to do. And it only happens because He allows it to happen. Because He wants it to happen. And that story we see played out again and again in John. Fast forward now to John chapter 18. And here we find the account of of Jesus' arrest, which I just find a fascinating story. It's different than all the other Gospels, than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Here, there really is no agony in the garden. Okay? There is no complaint like there is in the other Gospels. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. There is no request. Abba, take this cup from me. In fact, that whole scene is left out of John's gospel. It's not even there. I mean, Judas is present there in the garden, but apparently he, he's too timid to even step forward and give Jesus a kiss. Instead, it's Jesus himself who bravely identifies himself to his captors. Look at the account sometime. He says, who is it that you want? Okay, there the soldiers are. Who is it that you want, he says. And they return, Jesus of Nazareth. And then do you remember what happens? We want Jesus of Nazareth. So what does he say? I am he. I am he. Or in the Greek, he simply says, I am. It's the last of Jesus' I am statements in the Gospel of John. I think you probably know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you can read a lot about it. Jesus makes these I am statements in the Gospel of John. They're famous, right? I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way and the truth and the life. And these Seven are metaphoric I am, sort of I am this or I am that. I am compared to this, I am compared to that. But there are also in John what we call these hidden I am's, where he simply says, I am. I am. I am the one that you're looking for. And when he says it here, I am, it's amazing what happens. All the soldiers draw back, we read. And then they all fall to the ground. They just fall to the ground just because he identifies himself. He's no lowly victim. This is the great I am from Exodus. This is the Yahweh. I am who I am. Moses, tell them, I am sent you. This is the one who is and who was and who is to come. This is God himself, the great I am. John goes on, sort of repeats the scene. Jesus has to ask again, who is it you want? They answer again, this time presumably from their backsides, laying on the ground. Who is it you want? Uh, Jesus of, of Nazareth. And Jesus tells them again, I told you that I am. But think about that scene. Because Jesus is probably standing over those who are come to take him away. 
And Jesus says to them, who is it that you want? I am. I am. Now think about that. If you're looking for me, he says, then let these others go. But it's not like they have a choice. This is the great I am speaking over them. Let the others go. Why does he say that? John adds, this happens so that the words that he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Those words are from John 6, where Jesus says that he came not to do his own will, but he came to do the will of the one who sent me. And what is the will of the one who sent me? That I should lose not one, not even one, of those that the Father has given me. Jesus is fulfilling those words right now in the garden. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. We find similar words in John chapter 10 where Jesus says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Who is in control here? I mean, on the surface, it looks like things have spun out of control. It looks like God is losing his son. It looks like the devil has finally won. But John is showing us a totally different picture. John is showing us a picture in which God's word is being fulfilled again and again every step of the way. Events are moving exactly according to God's plan. Jesus is in complete control. The great I am. Let's go back to that garden for just a moment. At that point, Peter pulls out his sword, right? Like he's going to protect the Lord. And he cuts off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And Jesus tells Peter to put his sword away with these words. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The cup. What cup is that? Well, it's the cup of suffering. It's the cup of God's wrath. The wrath of God against the sins of all of mankind. Now, if you know the synoptic accounts, you know that Matthew and Mark and Luke, they all speak of this same cup, don't they? But you also know that in those Gospels, Jesus prays in the garden, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me, but not here, not in John. In John, this is exactly why Jesus came. This is Jesus' mission, to do the will of him who sent me. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Friends, do you see the difference here? In the synoptics, Jesus is different. In the synoptics, he remains pretty much silent before Pilate. In John, he brilliantly debates Pilate. 
In the synoptics, Jesus needs help carrying his cross up to Golgotha. Jesus stumbles. The women of Jerusalem weep for him, not in John's gospel. Jesus carries his own cross. There's no mention of someone named Simon of Cyrene. There is no need for Simon of Cyrene. There's no stumbling to Golgotha. There's no women weeping. And then, mounted up on the cross, <clears throat> apparently in no pain whatsoever, he arranges for the care of his mother, and then he declares that he is thirsty. Not so much because he's really thirsty, but because he is so aware that Scripture must be fulfilled. And then when everything has been completed, Jesus gives up his spirit. He gives up his spirit in the exact same way he gives up his life. It's not taken from him. No one takes it from him. He willingly gives it up. Jesus is in control. This is all proceeding according to God's will and according to Jesus' will. Which brings us back to his words from the cross. I'm thirsty. Okay, now you're the interpreters. And knowing all that you know about the gospel according to John, what do you think he's talking about? It's sort of hard to believe that Jesus is simply simply expressing physical thirst here, isn't it? Because this isn't just the man, Jesus, up on the cross. This is the God, Jesus, who's up on the cross. This is the one who is in control. This is the one who is carrying out the will of him who sent him every step of the way. I thirst, says Jesus. For what does he thirst? For plain old water? Or for that cup? The cup which the Father had given him. The cup which the Father sent him to drink. The cup which he sent Jesus to drink. Why? So that his sheep would not have to drink it. Would never have to drink it. So that his sheep would always be safe. Every one of them. So he would not lose even one of those precious sheep. All of those the Father had given him. Jesus came to drink the cup, that cup. Now, friends, I don't want to minimize that cup here at all, right? That's not my intent. I don't think that's John's intent, to minimize the cup in any way. I'm not saying the cup was less intimidating or less intense or less severe here in the Gospel of John. And that happens sometimes with, with some theologians, some pastors, some church members, we have this sincere desire, right, that, that, that everyone should be saved, which is a really good desire. Don't get me wrong. It's the best desire. But sometimes the only way we seem to know how to get to that point where everyone is just saved is to do away with this notion of God's wrath, with his judgment on sin, with his hatred of injustice with the whole notion of hell. We just sort of do away with that and say, well, everybody's going to be okay in the end. And God is a God of love, and, and so just do your best, and, and, and it'll be okay. And so we turn that cup 
that cup of God's wrath into a little high seed juice box and not the bitter vinegar that it was offered up on a stalk of hyssop just like the blood of the Passover lamb. John is telling us this cup of suffering was real. It required the real blood of a real Passover lamb. The cup is still the cup of suffering. It remains God's wrath against all the damage that has ever been done by us to one another and to God himself and to God's world. It's the one thing, friends, that cup is the one thing that stands between us and the kingdom of God. There will be no kingdom of God unless that cup is drunk. And John's intent is not, I say, not to downplay that cup. Rather, it is to show us that Jesus is nevertheless not reticent to drink it at all. But rather, he is eager to drink that cup. Because he knows that it's the only way to ever bring in the kingdom of God. It's the only way to ever change our stories from pain to relief, from suffering to healing, from sinner to saved, from bitter to joyful, from lonely to loved, from orphaned to adopted, from LGBTQ to son or daughter of God and bride of Christ, from rich man to great man, from first nation and Caucasian to that great multitude that no man could count, from Instagram influencer to just a plain old good neighbor. Jesus carried each and every one of these stories with him to the cross and then he said, now, let me drink this cup. Let me put an end to the violence and to the war and to the abuse and to the suffering. Let me write a new story. A story in which there is a Savior. A good Savior. A strong Savior. A loving Savior. And a happy ending. Let me write you a new story, says Jesus. I thirst for that new story. For you. For every one of you. I thirst for that story. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, We often clamor for a new story for ourselves. We want something new, something fresh. Sometimes we want a new story for someone close to us, someone near to us that we love dearly. But Lord, here we're reminded of again that we never want that new story as much as you do. You want that new story for all of us. The story that's filled with eating and drinking in the kingdom of God. 
So you thirst. You wanted to drink that cup of God's wrath so that all of us could drink the cup of joy in the kingdom of God together forever with you, our God, and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your thirst. We thank you for quenching that thirst on our behalf. It's in your great name that we pray. Amen.